Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, August 9th, 2012. So have you ever heard a sermon where somebody tries to biblically justify playing secular songs in church? (laughs) Well, if not, you're going to hear one today. That's what we're going to do in our sermon review time today. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and one of the major problems is that there are a lot of people in the visible church who really are not listening to the word of God, what's written in God's word, but instead are seeking after unique individual so-called visions from God. And that becomes the word of God for them. These experiences, these dreams, these visions. And what you find is just give it enough time. The people who are pursuing these things, they will literally put their experiences above God's word God's word will take a back seat, and then if this thing progressive and metastasizes, God's word goes out the window, and these people spend a lot of their time on spirit walks. Yeah, that's probably the best way of describing it. But it's it's really rampant in the church. It's really a bad thing. And listen, folks, um, the we are to look to God's word. God's word alone is sufficient. It, it you know, Scripture says that you know God's word is inspired. It's it's theonoustos, it's God-breathed, and it's profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness, so the man of God may be fully equipped. You, you, literally, you know, the Bible says that the Bible will fully equip you as a Christian for every good work. Those people who are off on these spirit walks, chasing after these dreams and specific individual revelations— they ultimately are despising God's word and do not believe that it's sufficient. Do not believe that God's word is capable of fully equipping you for any good work that God has called you to. And keep this in mind. Everybody who claims to come to you with a direct revelation, they've got to be tested. And it's not just the revelation to see if it squares with Scripture. You have to test all of that person's theology as well. And what are you tested against? The word of God. And so if I'm going to have to test it against the Word of God, do I really need um, these these unique special revelation thingies? Well, the answer is no, we don't. And so what this program does 
is slows down what these people are saying, opens up the scripture and tests. And what we find over and over and over again is those people who are claiming to be receiving these unique special revelations from God, they're not teaching what's in accord with sound doctrine, and their revelations can't be squared with Scripture. And the practices that are coming about as a result of these so-called revelations, they can't be squared with Scripture either. As a result of it, we must reject their prophetic insights and classify them as false prophets, as wolves in sheep's clothing, angels of light, uh, basically demons masquerading as angels of light. They are working for the other team. They aren't working for Team Jesus, even if they mention Jesus a couple of times in a sermon. I, uh, one of the things I jokingly say is that if you listen to these guys' sermons, what's fascinating to me is that Jesus if he makes an appearance at all. Usually it's a cameo appearance, and I'm pretty concer- I'm pretty convinced that they've got Jesus gagged and hogtied, you know, right behind the stage entrance uh, to their churches so that they can parade him out every now and then. See, see, we got Jesus, and then they quick get rid of him before he says something. Unbelievable what's going on in the church today, and it's very dangerous. It's very deceptive, and what's at stake, well, are people's souls. Because here's the deal. Well, those people who are claiming to be receiving these special revelations, oftentimes they're teaching a different Jesus, a different gospel, and a different spirit. And we are warned in Scripture about such things. And the way you learn to detect those things, well, is by God's Word. In fact, I'd like to share with you a little biblical passage. Um, if you have your Bible, flip on over to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And uh, I want to read to you what the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said to the Christians at the the church at Philippi. Okay, Verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Pay close attention to this next part. For God is my witness how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may be that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God Paul in his prayer says that he's praying that their love may abound with knowledge and all discernment so that they may approve what is excellent approve what is excellent The converse of that is reject what is false, reject what isn't excellent, reject what is not true. And so the scriptures themselves point us to the importance of growing in our knowledge and understanding of the truth. And that's only as we become more and more versed and familiar with God's word and rightly handle it. That means rightly distinguishing the, the biblical categories that the Bible itself tells you to distinguish properly distinguishing law and gospel, sin and grace, and understanding that the scriptures are ultimately about Christ and what he has done for you. And they're there for your aid, 
for your comfort. They're there to make you uncomfortable and to encourage you and prompt you on to good works. God's Word is sufficient. It is living and active and powerful. And unfortunately, what we're hearing so much from people who call themselves pastors in the church today is anything but God's Word rightly handled. It's as if God's Word is an afterthought or it's just something that's proof-texted to basically create the illusion that a man-made doctrine is a biblical doctrine when it's not really a biblical doctrine. It's just a man-made doctrine with some out-of-context verses hung on to it to create the impression that it's a biblical doctrine. Scary days that we live in. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. At the top of the program, I said, I asked you the question, if you have ever heard a sermon that supposedly is attempting to lay out the biblical case for playing secular songs, not praise songs, not hymns, not psalms, but the latest top 40 or even previous top 40 hits, you know, from different secular um, musical artists. Have you ever heard of somebody try to give a biblical apologetic for such craziness? Well, we're going to be listening to one today. The name of it is On the Farm, Cowbell, and it's by Jeff Henderson of Daybreak Church in Hudsonville, uh, Michigan. We're going to be listening to that in hour number two today, so you're not going to want to miss that. It's kind of a unique sermon. I, you know, In my collection, I think I only have maybe three different sermons that attempt this particular feat. But as you're going to hear when we listen to the sermon today... All of the biblical texts that he tries to bring to bear to justify this particular technique that is popular in the seeker-driven movement, none of them say the things that he's wanting them to say, and they don't support the practice at all. We'll be getting into that. But uh, before we do that, hour number one, we're going to be uh, do. I got two emails that I want to do today. I have a Bill Johnson update. Man, it has been a long time since I've done a Bill Johnson update. Bill Johnson of Bethel in Redding, California. Um, he's going to be explaining to us how on his leadership team, if two people, well, if he and somebody on his leadership team both have a vision from God, if he doesn't properly handle that, those two visions could cause duh vision. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So we're going to be listening to that. I got a Will Mancini update. Will Mancini is supposedly a famous church consultant who teaches about vision and vision casting and all that kind of stuff. And it's from the uh, the Catalyst Space website. See if you can make heads or tails of that. Um, I Then I've got a, well, <laughs> a circle maker. Um, cir- yeah, circle maker blasphemies, just put it, put it this way. Now, rather, I've got a, so this is a, an update on the circle maker. But what I'm going to do today, rather than play for you, from, for you audio from the audio book itself, uh, the, the circle maker, I'm going to let you hear what happens when this false teaching hits a, a different church rather than Mark Batterson's church. So we're going to be listening to a, a, a portion, a, the opening portion of a recently preached sermon on the circle maker from a you know a seeker-driven church planter. And, uh, and basically, I've named the section Circle Maker Blasphemy. So we've got a lot of ground to cover uh, today. We're going to start off with email. So with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. Here we go. Now, which one do I want to start with? Both of them are good. (laughs) 
Okay, to start off our email today, I got an email from a new listener. Her name is Pam, and she's from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Pam writes, she says, um, I, I, I am Pam, and I'm almost 60 years old and a new listener, and I am enjoying your program at work on a day, at daily as I'm doing my work. And I must admit, I'm concerned about several things, most of them revolving around the what on earth is safe to listen to idea. Now, I've heard you mention Beth Moore, whose teachings I thought were sound. Can you point me uh, to the program where you discuss her writings. Actually, um, I, if you go, uh, Pam, if you go to the archives of Fighting for the Faith, in fact, if you just, you know, let me do this myself so that I uh, don't give you bum information here. If you go to fightingforthefaith.com, when you arrive there at the website, on the right-hand side of the page, right near, right, in fact, right under the main banner, it says search. If you type into the search box, Beth more and then hit search what it will do is will take you to uh the the programs of fighting for the faith in our archives where i've mentioned beth moore i would look at uh the episodes in particular i would look at the episode entitled narcissistic evangelism telling your story is not evangelism there i um basically do some work pulling apart some of the things that Beth Moore has done. Um, I've got even a sermon review uh, in the episode entitled, Did Bono Open for Stephen Furtick? Um, I've got a, I did a sermon review on her sermon entitled Pressing On uh, 1 and 2. And then um, I've got another episode called Don't Throw, uh, Brian McLaren asks, Is God Violent? In there, I uh, review something, uh, I do another sermon review by uh, Beth Moore entitled, Don't Throw Away Your Confidence. And, uh, and so the, those would be the, that would be the place that I would go. Those three episodes, I deal with some of the things that Beth Moore has said. But then you ask questions like this. Is Matt Chandler sound? Chuck Missler? John MacArthur? How about Todd Friel? Man, you have me so confused, I don't know who I can listen to. Here's the idea, okay? Here's the idea. Everybody, including me must be listened to with discernment, okay? Now, Chuck Missler, um, you know, he's one of these prophecy guys, and, you know, I, I don't put a lot of stock in him. John MacArthur has a good, long career of preaching and exegeting God's Word, um, it, it, but that doesn't mean that he's without, well, how do I put it? it? It's not as if there's there's things that he hasn't said during the course of his ministry life and in his books that hasn't created some controversy and some good theological controversy at that. I, I would think back to the lordship salvation thing, which I think is really an utter confusion of law and gospel. But does that mean we should just throw John MacArthur out? I, I, I like to think of it this way, okay? is that every one of us, me, Chandler, Missler, MacArthur, Friel, by the way, Friel and I, we know each other, and I have a lot of respect for the work that he does in his ministry uh, there at Wretched Radio. The idea is this, don't trust any of us. It's just that simple. Not even me. Don't even trust me. The idea is, is that you can trust God's word. So learn to hear, learn to listen to different people, based upon how they're handling God's Word. Read, listen to them with an open Bible. When they're pa- quoting passages to you, put those passages in context and ask the question, are they rightly teaching what these passages say? And more importantly, who are they pointing you to as the solution for your problem? Because the Bible is very clear that we all collectively share the same problem. And this problem is this that we were all born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God, 
Okay, And even as Christians, we struggle against our sinful flesh that we don't get to have removed from us until either the day we die or the day Christ returns in glory to judge both the living and the dead. That being the case, who are they pointing you to as the solution to your sin problem? Are they pointing you to you or are they pointing you to your crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ? Are they pointing you away from Christ, or are they pointing you to Christ? Are they fixing your faith? Okay, Faith is trust and belief. Are they fixing your faith on Jesus, or are they fixing your faith on you, or some dream, or some vision, or some code cracking of the biblical revelation of the end times? Who are they pointing you to? They're pointing you to Christ, and they're rightly handling God's word. Then receive their teaching as you know as good teaching insofar as they properly teach you the scriptures and point you to Jesus he is our great god and savior he is the object of our faith he is to be worshiped and praised he must increase and all of us including me must de- decrease so that's the idea what uh, always 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 understand that every person you listen to Chandler, Missler, MacArthur, Friel, Rosebro, Brannon House, whoever. All of us, the one thing we all have in common, we're all sinners. And we're capable of sinning. And sinning even against the first commandment. The first commandment that says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now that manifests itself in not understanding God's word, teaching false doctrine, and not fixing people's eyes on Christ, but fixing them back on ourselves. So if your sin problem is based, if somebody says, here's your sin problem, and they do a good job of correctly showing you what your problem is from Scripture, and then say, it's up to you to fix it, they're not pointing you to Jesus. They're pointing you to yourself. They're teaching legalism and self-righteousness. Don't listen to that person. Turn them off. Find and listen to the people who point you to Jesus. That's who you need to listen to. Okay. Next email comes from Chase uh, in Pennsylvania. I don't know what town in Pennsylvania, but Chase writes. He says, hi, Chris. I really enjoy your uh, your show. It's opened my eyes to the beauty of the gospel, the depth of my sin, and the love of Christ. And I'm seeing a, a new balance between law and grace. I know my church has the tendency to lean towards legalism. Do this. We need to be better. We need to change this with little mention of the cross of Christ and our and and uh, his death for our sins. I do have a few questions that I'm wrestling with that that a couple of brothers have brought up at church. For instance, in Matthew 5 where Jesus makes uh the calling higher for the law, for I tell you that if you even look at a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery. Gouge out your eye if it causes you to sin, and your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. Jesus seems to be uh, to make the calling for his disciples to be higher, or even where Peter calls, be holy as God is holy. Sorry if I'm misquoting. I'm quickly writing this at work. I'm seeing this amazing love of Christ and how we need to be utterly disgusted with our sinfulness and then look to the cross in gratitude, and that will in turn move us to do good deeds. I'm confused how to take Jesus's words and his challenges. Um, Chase, great questions. Let me help you out here. Okay. First and foremost, okay, the, the categories of law and gospel, these are biblical categories and they're fleshed out in scripture itself. So you need to have an open Bible here and I'll help, I'll help walk you through what Jesus is doing there in the Sermon on the Mount and help you learn how to 
properly understand that so that you would be spurred on to good works because you are a new creation in Christ, not because you fear the wrath of God. Does that, does that make sense? Uh, even though that's not necessarily a bad thing, you know, you, 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 you have to understand Christians do good works because we're saved. The, the sword of Damocles no longer sits over our head. In fact, Christ took the bullet for us. That's what he was doing on the cross. So when we're, we look to the cross and we see that we have a gracious and merciful and kind and loving God, and we trust in him and his forgiveness, Christians do good works because they're a new creation. They can't help but do good works, even though we wrestle with our own sinful flesh. So the question is, how do we properly understand, you know, when Jesus cranks the law up? Well, there's a good reason why Jesus cranks the law up, and even the Apostle Paul does the same thing. Now, this is a passage I regularly go to on the program. It's Romans chapter 3. And you, you, when you really dig into this text, you'll you'll begin to understand kind of the rough cuts of what's going on here with law and gospel. Here's what Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 3, verse 9. So what then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable for uh, to God. For by works of the law, no human will be declared righteous or justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That is the primary purpose of the law, is to, to show you your sin. So when we go back into the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, when Jesus say, you've heard it said, but I say, that's, that's, that's the section that you're quoting there. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say that if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have already committed adultery with her. Okay, Who's his audience? These are you know, legalistic Jews, if you would. And they're thinking that they're keeping the law because they're only thinking of keeping the law in terms of commission, things that I commit. So what happens is, is that they're trying to justify themselves by saying, hey, listen, I'm not an adulterer. I haven't done the deed. But Jesus points out that the purpose of the law here is to basically, well, Paul points out that through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the lawgiver himself, Jesus, not Moses. Okay, who do you think Moses was meeting with on uh, on Mount Sinai, right? He says, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her. And you're going, oh, man, that means sin isn't just what I do or don't do. It's Sin is committed in thought, in word, and deed. It is committed by what you do and what you don't do. It's, in fact, the purpose of the law is to prove to you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you are a wretched sinner. For 
through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's the primary use. Now, keep in mind that there are three uses of the law. When we, t- when, you know, th- this is historically how we discuss the law, and there's three right uses. The first use kind of falls into the gu- uh, category of government. God's law is then is basically taken up by local governments to curb evil. Okay, so the commandment that says "Thou shalt not murder." turns into statute number 67321 in the civil code that says you shall not murder, right? And somebody who's guilty of murder or manslaughter or whatever is put on trial. And so the idea is is that the government takes up God's law, even though it's the law written on their heart, and it takes on different forms. There's a lot of kind of universal, you know, universal application of these principles against stealing against murdering and things like that and the the job of the government then is to punish evildoers and keep a curb or a check on on sinful human nature okay that's the first use second use of the law is the primary use mentioned here in Romans chapter 3 verse 20 through the law comes the knowledge of sin primary use is the second use of the law and that's to show you your miserable, rotten state and standing before God as a sinner, okay? And that's the idea here. So that all of us, as Paul writes, now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped or shut up and the whole world held accountable to God, okay? That's the second That's the second use. Third use is only for Christians, okay? And, and here's the idea. You don't get to dial it in. Okay, a Christian pastor has no ability to dial in the use of the law. But when you preach the law, you're either preaching to condemn sins or to spur Christians on to good works. And here's the idea. It it doesn't actually, the, the law doesn't spur us to good works. It shows us what a good work is, but it doesn't give us the power to do it. The only thing that gives us the power to do a good work is really the gospel itself. Okay, because think of it this way. Somebody who thinks that God is this vindictive, mean old curmudgeon in the sky with his arms crossed, basically saying, you had better keep my law or else, okay? And so what they do is they hear God's law, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt not, and they they, they go, well, I've got to please God by my good works. So the person who p- tries to please God by their good works, by their keeping of the law, doesn't actually have faith in God at all. They don't see him as kind, merciful, forgiving, or anything of the sort. Instead, they believe that they can appease God and God's wrath, which they know that they've earned, but they they can somehow appease God by their good works. That is somebody who can't even begin to keep the law, and these are people who are playing games, okay? They're trying to come up with basically saying, well, it's not really a sin if I do it this way or I don't do that or whatever, whatever. The, the, The law basically says to you, to hell with your good works. That's what it says, and literally that's what the end result is. Okay, if if you think that you can somehow appease God by your paltry attempts at obedience, you have no clue what's going on here. The law basically says there's nothing you got that God wants you. Okay, and so what happens is the law drives you to that point where you stand before God, really, for lack of a better way of putting it, completely naked of all of your good works and understanding that you're dirty and stinky and putrefying and just diseased to the core. And you stand before God and say, I got nothing. 
I really have got nothing. Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. You see, at that point, the law has done its work. The law has done its work, and now you're ready to hear the gospel. And here's the good news. Christ has kept the law perfectly for you. You do not have a standing before before God that is based even in part on your own righteousness. Let me read to you another passage that I regularly go to. Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. Paul writing against the Judaizers, okay, who say that unless you're circumcised, you're not a Christian. Paul says, look out for those dogs. Look out for those evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks that he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless." But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Okay, real quick pause here. He counts all of his good works that he committed, that he did as a Jew. That's the list there in verses four through, uh, you know, seven, right? Okay, he counts all of that as rubbish. And the Greek word there is skubalon. It's way stronger than rubbish. It's basically a big, piley, stinky thing of dog poo. Okay, think of it that way. Okay, that's what skubalon is. So he considers all of his good works as rubbish. And watch this. In order that I might gain Christ and be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from God through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So here's the idea, okay? Paul doesn't want to be found having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law. Instead, he wants to be found in Christ having the righteousness that is from God given to him, imputed to him as if he lived it, right? So how do you find this righteousness of God? Okay, now I'm going to pause for a second here. The answer is in the text. I just read it, but I want to digress for just one second. In your email, you ask the question, what do you do with when Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you cannot be saved, right? Notice here, Paul in this text, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is answering this very question, okay? How can I be saved then if my righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees? So here, Paul, as a, you know, speaking as a Pharisee, tells you all of the good works that he did under the law, and he considers that to be rubbish. So unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you cannot be saved? Well, the answer is actually pretty simple. Okay, Paul goes on to explain that he doesn't have a righteousness of his own, but that he has a righteousness that is given to him by faith, and it's the righteousness of Christ. It's the righteousness of God. Christ's perfect obedience is credited to your account as if you lived it. Just like your sins were credited to Jesus as if he was 
the one who committed him? I mean, look at Jesus on the cross. He's dying as a sinner, yet he committed no sin. How can that be? Answer, your sins were credited to him as if he's the one who committed him. He's being punished in your place. So when we're brought to repentance and faith in Christ, Jesus' perfect sinless righteousness is credited to your account as if you're the one who lived it. That's the dichotomy that Paul has set up here. So now you get what's going on. Okay. Now let me read to you another passage that I think is relevant to the question that you're asking. Second Corinthians chapter three. I'm going to read probably most of the chapter, starting at verse one. Paul writes, he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some do letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, you know, works, righteousness, obedience, or whatever, but our sufficiency is from God. It's so we're the sufficiency we're looking to is not in ourselves, but our sufficiency is coming from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, notice what it says about the ministry of the law. The ministry of the law is the ministry of death, and it needs to kill all of you, okay? The purpose of the law is to kill you, drive you to your knees in despair of your own self-righteousness. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will that which is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who did, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, they, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see what's going on here? So Paul himself, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes it clear that if we're in Christ, we have freedom. And it's important that it's not that we don't turn that into freedom for a license to sin. Now understand that since you are now free in Christ, you've been set free from sin, death, and the devil. Now that you are free in Christ and free from slavery to sin, death, and the devil, you are now free to do good works. You are free 
to obey your great God and Savior. You're free to do this. Whereas you can't do it on your own. You can't even you you can't even say that you're being obedient. But because you're in Christ and you're clothed with the righteousness of Christ, you do good works because you're a new creation in him. That's what Paul kind of points to in Romans chapter six. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Well, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, we're set free now to walk in newness of life. For if we had been united with him in a death like his, we shall surely surely be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ has been raised from the dead and will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So here's the idea. Now as a Christian... Because you still have your sinful flesh to deal with, when you read in the law and the law points its bony fingers at you and it says, you aren't doing this, you're disobedient, okay? Don't say to the law, oh, you're wrong. No, I'm, I'm sinless. That's not true. You say to the law, this is most certainly true. You're right. I stand guilty before God. But, but I am in Christ. I have been baptized. I have had my sins washed away. And in my baptism, I was placed into Christ's death and into his resurrection. I'm dead to sin and I'm alive in Christ. And I am free now in Christ, set free from sin, death, and the devil. And yes, law, you are right. I do not keep this. And understand this, it is God's will that you do keep his law. So you're set free from sin, death, and the devil. So when you hear the law pointing its bony finger at you, confess your sin. Confess your sin to your Lord. And again, ask for forgiveness. Christ himself encourages you to do so. When he says, when you pray, say, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, right? Jesus teaches us to pray daily, daily for forgiveness. And let me end with what the Apostle John writes in his letter, 1 John chapter 1, starting at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see what's going on here? Paul's writing so that they won't, uh, not Paul, but John's writing so that they won't sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father. Confess your sins. 
and know that God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the idea. That's the idea. So you stand before God as perfectly righteous because Jesus' perfect righteousness is given to you as a gift through faith. Trust in the merciful promises of God for the forgiveness of your sins and see yourself as clothed in the righteousness of Christ and better than that, in your baptisms, buried with Christ, raised with Christ, and now dead to sin, dead to the devil, dead to... That's the idea, okay? And understand that daily you're going to sin. That's why you pray, forgive us our trespasses every day. Okay? So the Christian walk is one of a constant tug of war between your sinful flesh and the world and your and the new man, the new Adam that you are because you've been regenerated and born again in Christ. And that tension will eventually be cut on the day either when you die or Christ returns in glory. It seems like a... You know, kind of schizophrenic way to live. It's a very difficult and tough way to live. It involves a lot of suffering and a lot of repenting and a lot of being forgiven. But that's the idea. We're now set free in Christ to do good works. Go as one who is set free from sin, death, and the devil and do good works, not because you have to, not because they earn you brownie points with God, but because you get to, because you're free now from real slavery. Sin is slavery. You've been set free from it in Christ. Go and live in freedom. That's the idea. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hello, I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes, uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon, that's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey, I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. 
Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, Now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to mean its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Well, well, I'd better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered gospel Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com, I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net, situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long time Pirate Christian Radio 
featured advertiser, Cheapo Air, is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember... A portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Uh, warning, if somebody's throwing you back on your own righteousness in order to please God, they don't understand the gospel, nor do they understand biblical sanctification. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will find our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Let me thank you for your support. And if you're still wanting to get your T-shirt, we're, we're going to be wrapping up our summer bake sale before too long here. It's not too late for you to get uh, uh, your PCR T-shirt for the summer or uh, my the one of the bracelets that my mother-in-law made uh, for our listeners to help us get through the lean, mean summer months. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale and get yours today. Okay, moving along. Just so you know, we're going to do our Bill Johnson and Will Mancini update tomorrow since I went longer in the email segment. We're going to do our Circle Maker update right now, though. Belinda Carlisle and her song, A Circle, a Circle in the Sand. Now, before I get to this segment, just to let you know, I'm going to be playing a portion here, not the full thing, but a portion of a sermon uh, preached at Capital City Church in Columbus, Ohio, and that you're going to be listening to Shane Hart, and the name of his sermon is, What's Your Jericho? Now, I'm very tempted to play the What's Your El Wapo segment from the Three Caballeros, but we got a little bit more important work to do. And here's the reason why. Okay. 
He, this is from the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Another translation, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Now, Luther in his small catechism asked the question, what does this mean, that we shall not take God's name in vain or misuse the name of the Lord? Here's what he says. We should fear and love God so that we do not curse, swear, use satanic arts, or lie or deceive by God's name. But call upon in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. Now, here's the idea, is that in Christianity today, there is a big, big disconnect between this commandment and what people understand it to mean. And what I mean by that is this, is that, you know, have you ever had your hand slapped or your mouth, uh, your, your face slapped, or, you know, somebody chastise you and wag their finger at you if you say, OMG? And, well, you should have that happen, by the way. Uh, and then that, and you go, what, 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 what? And they go, don't you blaspheme the name of the Lord. Okay. And so what happens is, is that there's a common misperception. And that is, is that that's really what this commandment's getting at. That's, let me just put it this way, that is just the tiniest, most remotest tip of the iceberg. What it really means, what God is forbidding here is blasphemy, real bona fide blasphemy. And blasphemy is when you lie and say God is commanding something when he isn't. If I were to say, listen, God is commanding all of you to eat Grilled cheese sandwiches. And if you don't eat grilled cheese sandwiches, in fact, specifically on Thursday afternoons, you are sinning. You are not doing what God wants you to do. You'd all look at me and going, where did you get this information that God wants me to eat a grilled cheese sandwich on Thursdays? You, you then that, That's not what God commands. There's no commandment in the Bible that says such a thing. And then you would come to me and say, Roseboro, what, what's this grilled cheese sandwich theology that you're promoting here? Saying that God wants us to eat grilled cheese sandwiches on Thursdays. Where did you get this information? Okay. If I can't point you to a clear biblical text that says God wants you to eat grilled cheese sandwiches on Thursdays, I'm lying. And it's not just any old lie. I'm pretending to be a spokesman for God. I am speaking with the authority of God by hijacking his name and invoking him to basically, you know, and smuggling his name and slapping it on my man-made doctrine and trying to pass it off as if it's what really what God wants you to do. That's exactly what it means to take God's name in vain, to lie to deceive, to smug, basically steal God's logo, his name, and slap it onto your false doctrine, your false teaching, your man-made ideas, and somehow take God's authority and put it on that. That's what it means to blaspheme God, to lie about him, to lie regarding what he commands or what he wants from you or what he doesn't demand for you or things like that, and use invoke his name to do so. That's blasphemy. What you're going to hear in this segment is a flagrant and just off-the-chain example of rank blasphemy, lying, using the name of God. This is a flat-out breaking of the commandment to not take God's name in vain. And it's being done by pastor, lead pastor Shane Hart of Capital City Church. Here, listen in to his sermon 
What's your Jericho? Power of a single prayer to change the course of history. Turning your Bibles to your electronic devices, your paper, uh, whatever you're using for Bible today, to Joshua chapter 6. You know, it's been well over 2,000 years since the day that Honey drew the circle in the sand. But God is still looking for circle makers. God is still looking for those willing to pray the bold prayers of faith. To call out for God to do something incredible. And we need to understand. Okay, do you have a biblical passage that says that? God is looking for circle makers? God is looking for people who will cry out bold prayers. Well, is that how Jesus taught us to pray? Pray for bold things? Huh. And that today, as much as then, just as Mark Batterson just said, the author of this book that we'll be talking more about today and over the next few weeks, that statement that he said in there stood out, bold prayers honor God, and God honors bold prayers. Just as true as it was 2,000 years ago, it is true today. God honors bold prayers. He's not offended by your biggest dreams or your boldest prayers. He's offended when we think small. Okay. Did you hear that? God is offended when you think small. Apparently, God's offended by small prayers when you think small. Okay. This is flat out rank blasphemy. There is not one word of God from the scripture. You cannot go to the written word of God and find any teaching that says this. God is offended by your small dreams and your small prayers. Now, let me remind you again how Jesus taught us to pray. Remember, the disciples came to Jesus. Lord, teach us to pray. Okay? And Jesus didn't say, when you pray, draw a circle in the sand and pray audaciously. Pray boldly, because if you don't, I'm going to be sitting at the right hand of the, of the Father, up enthroned in heaven, and I'm going to be offended by small prayer. So be sure to dream big and to pray big, hairy, audacious prayers, right? He didn't say anything like that. Listen, Jesus' answer, he said, when you pray, say, Our Father, who art in heaven, Holy, hallowed is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Do you think that praying for daily bread is big, hairy, audacious, or is that kind of small? What do you think? Small or big? I mean, I don't know about you, but, you know, a hand-sized sandwich is not much of a big, hairy, audacious goal or or some bold, big, grand dream, right? I mean, what are you dreaming for, Chris? I'm dreaming for daily bread. I'm dreaming for a sandwich today. I'm dreaming that God will provide what is necessary to clothe me and to feed me today. Well, according to what Mark Batterson teaches and what Shane Hart is preaching here, God would be offended by that. In other words, if we were to take this teaching to its logical conclusion, we must conclude that to pray the way Jesus taught us to pray is to offend God himself. Are you willing to make that leap? Are you willing to take it to its logical conclusion that if you pray the Lord's Prayer, you are offending God? Hear it again. God honors bold prayers. 
Just as true as it was 2,000 years ago, it is true today. God honors bold prayers. He's not offended by your biggest dreams or your boldest prayers. He's offended when we think small. God's offended when we only come to him thinking small. When we only come to him and ask him to do things that, quite honestly, we could do on our own. Yeah, you know, like earn daily bread. You see what's going on here? This is not a biblical teaching. This is rank blasphemy. This is invoking the name of the one true God and basically making statements about him and what he wants from you without any written word that says anything of the sort. This is what it means to take God's name in vain. When we come in and we ask him to do things that quite honestly are easy to imagine and easy to assume in the natural. Yeah, it's really easy to assume daily bread in the natural. Yet Jesus told me to pray for it. Weird, huh? By the way, you know what the problem here is? Aside from the obvious that he's basically blaspheming God. Um, here's the idea. Would you be able to breathe if God had not given you the ability to breathe? Nope. Every breath you take is a miracle. Would you be able to see if God had not given you the ability to see? Nope. Even eyesight's a miracle from God. So you wouldn't be able you wouldn't be breathing, walking, doing anything on God's planet, big or small by human standards, if God had not given you to do it. Now think of it this way. I'm gonna rip off a, a metaphor used by C. S. Lewis in one of his books. Okay. We think about the wedding feast in Cana. Okay, we're you know, I think what John chapter two, where Jesus takes these nine jar, huge jars of water and turns it into wine, right? Yeah, that's a miracle, is it not? Truly, it is a miracle. And the reason why we say it's a miracle is because he took water and he turned it into wine immediately, or immediately without any kind of intermediary step. It just went from water to wine because God Christ commanded it to do so, right? But do you not understand? that God himself performs that miracle every single year. I mean, if you were to travel to Napa Valley or Sonoma Valley or to the French Rhinelands, uh, you know, wh you go, wherever they're, they're making wine, right? Every single year this miracle takes place. God takes water and he turns it into wine. And the way he does it is through a grapevine that he created, it wouldn't be there if God had not said, let it be there, right? In Genesis, God commands the earth to spring forth vegetation of different kinds. And one of the things that sprang forth at the command of God was a, was a thing called a grapevine. And those grapevines produce grapes. And when you squeeze those grapes, they, well, they, you know, little juice, little wine comes out and given a year or two in the proper setting, they, you know, it ferments into a fine table wine or something like that. But the idea is this, that miracle takes place every single year, every single year. And, you know, in the Northern Hemisphere at one season and in the Southern Hemisphere in another season, but God is turning water, literally ordinary water into wine by means of the vine that he created to do so. That is truly a miracle. You see, the problem with these 
audacious, big, hairy goal guys and, you know, and these, this false blasphemous doctrine that unless you're praying for these huge things God's insulted is that they fail to see the miraculous in the ordinary. I mean, it is a miracle that you're breathing right now because God not only created the universe, he sustains it to this day. I mean, if you do not see that even the very food that is on your table every single day is there by God's gracious hand, you've missed some of the most amazing miracles ever. It's a miracle that you have a home. It's a miracle that you have food. It's a miracle that you have clothes. God provides for all, for all of your needs. And yet these guys spurn all of that, despite the fact that Jesus taught us to pray for it, and they're teaching falsely about God that he's basically, yeah, listen, it's up to you, you know, whatever you can do in the in the in the flesh and in, you know, in the in the ordinary and in the natural. But you 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 know you got you 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 just do all of that, and then God's got you know you got to come to God with a big hairy audacious goal and hairy audacious prayer because if you don't, He's offended because He knows you could take care of the stuff in the natural. That's a complete lie. Every bit of the natural is supernatural, and I mean that because God is the one who spoke it into existence. Every bit of matter that you can see, touch, smell, you know, taste, all of that was created by God. All of it is a miracle. Everything. God knows the numbers of the hairs on your head. You don't even know that. So God cares all the way down to the minutest details about you. Details that you don't even know about. Right? Yeah. A miracle is a miracle no matter how small. <laughs> I feel like Horton, you know, from Horton here's a who. Remember, you know, how, how's that line go? A person's a person no matter how small. Listen, a miracle is a miracle no matter how small. And in your life, you, we, the scriptures teach us to see everything that we receive as a miracle by the hand of God. These guys despise that. Those don't honor God. Those kinds of prayers don't honor him at all. Those kinds of prayers, those, those are the prayers we pray because they're easy for us. Because when we come to God and we pray a prayer that we can easily understand, that we can easily see or even accomplish on our own, then we're not putting ourselves out there. There's no risk involved. There's no faith involved in a prayer like that. There's no passage that says any of this blasphemous nonsense. Those kinds of prayers don't require divine intervention. That's a complete lie. Everything requires divine intervention. But ask God to do something impossible. Ask him to do something impossible. Ask God to heal cancer. Ask God to heal AIDS. Ask God to provide that financial miracle. Ask God to change that heart. Ask God to save that neighbor. To make a difference in your job. To make a difference in your family. Ask God to free the addict. To open a closed door. Ask God to do the impossible. That kind of prayer gets his attention. Because that... Yeah, yet Jesus said, when you pray, say, Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil. Seems so ordinary, doesn't it? But see, these guys aren't interested in teaching God's word. They're filling your head with their own 
doctrines, their own false teaching, and worse, stealing God's name in order to create the illusion that this is a this is what God wants from for, from you. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is rank blasphemy. That kind of prayer honors him. That kind of prayer honors his omnipotence. That kind of prayer honors that he is God, that he is above, that he is beyond, that he is bigger and more powerful than we are. Those are the prayers that get his attention. Those are the prayers that bring a smile to God's face. Yet Jesus didn't teach us to pray like that at all, did he? So who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe Mark Batterson, Shane Hart, and the big, hairy, audacious faith people? Or are you going to believe Jesus, who taught us to pray for the everyday, for the ordinary, knowing that even the ordinary is miraculous and God cares about it? God wants you to pray for daily bread. Seems so common, seems so ordinary. But I know that God wants you to pray for it because that's how Jesus taught us to pray. And Jesus is God in human flesh. So who are you going to believe? All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. When we get back, we got a sermon that's going to try to give us a biblical argument for playing secular songs during church. Not going to want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. If everybody had a nose across the USA, then everybody be served like California. You'd see them wearing their baggies, Warachi sandals too, a bushy, bushy blonde hair. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. Like I said, have you ever heard a sermon that 
tries to give a biblical case for playing secular cover tunes during a church service. Well, if you've never heard one, you won't be able to say that after listening to this sermon. Just saying. The bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an Eagle Opportunity Sermon Reviewing Service. Today's um, sermon, <laughs> an attempt at a Bible teaching, uh, comes to us via Daybreak Church, Hudsonville, Michigan. Uh, Jeff Henderson presiding. The name of the sermon is On the Farm, Cowbell. Yeah, just what we need, more cowbell. And like I've been saying, this is an attempt to give a biblical case for opening up a church service with, you know, things like ACDC's Hell's Bells, um, you know, the latest cover tunes from whomever, you know, Miley Cyrus. I, who, who's popular nowadays? I don't listen to a lot of pop music, but, you know, things like that. So, um, let's do this. With, let me kill the music here. Without any further ado, here is uh, Jeff Henderson. I know you're dying to hear this. And his biblical attempt, uh, attempt at basically making the Bible say that it's okay to play secular cover tunes in church. Here we go. We are in the middle of a series, and we're dealing with frequently asked questions. And today, Jeff Henderson is going to be dealing with some important questions that you will want to hear the answers let me tell you a little bit about Jeff. Jeff is a school teacher. He is a coach. He's a family man, but he is one of our directors here. He's the director of spiritual formation. And today, I know you're going to enjoy his teaching. Well, good morning. How you guys doing? Good? Welcome to August. Love this month. My son, Caleb, uh, turned 19 yesterday we celebrated and this next week I turn hmm. yeah <laughs> I have a birthday but I'm not gonna through this message you might deduce what my age is and uh, it's good if you do hey it's awesome to be here part of the series uh, on the farm since I grew up on a farm for a while I absolutely love this and, and I'm honored to be a part of the teaching team I really am I love the opportunity to spend the time with you guys and to go over what it is that God's doing. And this is a great place to be, really. I thank God for Daybreak and what's, what's happening here. What you just saw with uh, all of our hip town kids and so many from the outside with Spring Hill, that's just amazing. NTS was recent. There's a group of kids praying throughout this building today because they're fired up. This is an amazing time, really is. When I think about on the farm, and where is that cowbell that Steve had? Here it is. Yeah, uh, when I think about this, it really takes me back to when I was growing up on the farm because these were the real deal, not maybe this big, but I grew up on a farm where my grandpa took care of cows, among other things, 
And there was one particular story that really makes a connection to this music idea today. Let me tell it to you. I was just probably 10, 11 years old. My brother Mark was about nine. And one evening, my uncles went out to bring the cows into the barn. They're going to do the evening milking. And they couldn't find them. They were nowhere to be found. So they came back scrambling to my grampy, and they said, oh, we don't know where the cows are. You know, typical, typical day. Well, we're going to get out after them. Let's go. So out we went. Grampy got on the tractor. My brother and I hooked, you know, jumped onto the back end, and off we went. Uncles walking through. We walked everywhere. It was like they were raptured. There's no cows. My grampy all at once said, shh, everybody just stop. And he just listened. You could hear the wind blowing through the mountain trees. And all of a sudden he said, they're that way. It's like, is he crazy? <laughs> is he hearing things? And we started walking and ended up at the bottom of a foothill. The plateau was higher than the ceiling, and it was almost 90 degrees. And my brother and I are like, what? these are, they're not goats, they're cows. No, they can climb, Uncle. They, could, they climbed all the way up to some green grass on the top of this pasture. My grandpa stood there and said, yep, you hear him? I still couldn't hear him. But somehow he just heard the faint, he heard a cowbell off in the distance. It struck a chord with him, with my grampy. And we went up there, herded him down and back into the barn late at night. Everybody was exhausted. But I, I learned something. Those sounds on that farm, my grampy tuned into those. They struck a chord with him. Now, we're talking about sounds in the church, music, what it's all about. And what I want to do today is go over five things that I think are very central to us at Daybreak and our mission. Number one, Daybreak music style. We have a music style that's different than a lot of places. We do that to attract. Second thing, what does the Bible show us about what we do? Is there a basis for it? Third, what does church history show us? Fourth, our mission with music. And finally, where does it go for you? Well, we get started, I got to tell you my own personal history about music, because even though I grew up in a family where music was somewhat important, it wasn't until I was in high school sports and preparing, you've watched the Olympic athletes, preparing for an athletic event is absolutely essential. You have to focus. You really have to tie in. And when I was a senior in high school, I let music start to become a part of what I did on a wrestling mat. And in fact, the first time I remember music really driving me, I mean, going from my head down here and just getting me ready to move and to focus, was my senior year in high school, and I had qualified for the Senior National Championships in Iowa City, Iowa. And while I was out there, the music that I listened to all the time was Boston's Don't Look Back. Maybe you remember this. The sound Come on, old rockers, you remember this? This fired my jets. Oh, I could feel it. Just wanting to move. Got my uniform on, ready to go. Competition over there. I was listening to this. And take off. Takes me right back. You wouldn't want to see me in that uniform now, but... This was the first music that really drove me as an athlete. I can listen to this today and still go, oh, I just... Olympic wrestling starts today. I'm going to be watching that stuff. It's amazing. There's another song that we've used here at Daybreak that I've seen a lot of you guys really groove to. In fact, uh, Kim is here. She belted this out recently. This song by Adele. You know this one, Rolling in Peace. Let's just move a little bit. Open it. Loosen up a little bit. Come on, church. 
Now, notice um, we're not in the Bible at all here. We're just apparently just celebrating his favorite tunes and his wife's favorite tunes. The purpose of sermon time is to preach the word. Okay, who is he starting off with? Well, them. This isn't apologetic for their methods. But he's not giving us a clear biblical teaching thus far. tell you one on a personal note, okay? A little inside track to the Henderson family. My wife was down here in the first service, and I just saw her get all gooey. We have a song. In the old days, kids, old-timers had songs, okay? We had our song. Back in the day, when we got married and still, when this comes on every now and then, I I only have eyes for you. Come on, careful. It's Sunday. Come on. Sunday, thank you. <laughs> that one is so special to my wife, Anne, and I. There's a... <laughs> you know, I could move like that, did you, in old age? There's another one that I think uh, strikes a chord for a lot of us. This is one that I've heard from, uh, from beautiful funeral celebrations to just people talking about the song with their own personal worship time. Mercy Me wrote this beautiful song I can only imagine. Strike a chord for you, it really does for me. I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine. A lot of you have said what my eyes today. will see some precious person that you celebrated or maybe your own time is with God or that just resonates music somehow for each one of us makes a huge impact how much so well, I'm gonna point something out the man that was standing back here earlier George Capistani playing these tom-toms came to this church probably nearly 20 years ago as a college student, atheist, heard the very song that we opened up with, Oyo Como Va, by Santana, and went, you're kidding me. He's Cuban. He went, oh my, they're playing something I love. He's been here ever since. Loves God. You've seen him do some crazy dramas on stage. He's one of the greatest tennis coaches in the world. He's going to be inducted into the Tennis Hall of Fame soon. And that's, that's an amazing truth. Which brings me to the first point. Why some secular music in daybreak services? Well, really, you can go right to Scripture for this. Jesus said to his disciples, Come, follow me, and I will make you, you can finish this, fishers of men. Yeah, here's the problem, okay, is the type of fishing matters, okay? 
was were the disciples a bunch of well uh fly fishermen were they lure fishermen because here's the deal fly fishing and lure fishing involves deception bait and switch basically hiding the hook using bait is that the kind of fisherman that peter and james and john then you know those guys were nope they were net fishermen Big difference. There's no deception in net fishing. You find where the fish are and you cast your net. You bring it in and you find whatever's in there. Okay, that's the idea. So the fishing metaphor here is, well, it doesn't apply. Because the type of fishing that Jesus was referring to was the type of fishing that Peter and the gang were familiar with. And it wasn't lure fishing and it wasn't bait fishing, which involves deception. It was net fishing, which involves no deception, no bait and switch. It's a matter of casting the net. Take the metaphor to its logical conclusion. What would be the net that Peter and the gang cast in order to bring in their haul of men? Answer, the gospel. They proclaimed repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, called people to repent and to be forgiven by the shed blood and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did they not? Nowhere in the uh, book of Acts do you find the apostles engaging in deception, bait and switch. Uh, you don't find in the book of Acts the apostle Peter setting up, well, basically a seeker-driven church whereby they would put on worldly plays of the pagan Roman type in order to draw a crowd. No, that doesn't happen. Instead, they cast the net of the gospel. They preach the word. So this text that he's using as a proof text to support the practice of singing secular songs in church doesn't support the practice of singing secular songs in church. Daybreak goes after certain fish. And it's not that we do anything that we believe is the only way, but it's what God gave to daybreak to do. And we really don't apologize for it. We go after people where they're at. In this world today, people are in a variety of places. And for us at Daybreak, we want to go to where people are at. So number one, at the very top of this, our mission is to have a baby. Actually, no, you're not going. That's, that's actually a false verb. You're not going where the people are at. No. Okay. An attractional seeker-driven church is designed to attract people to your church. You're not going. You're marketing and engaging in methods and bait and switch tactics in order to attract. So that's the wrong verb. Bait to go after certain people, to take God to them, because sometimes people don't come to God. Does that make sense? I know I didn't. It took a college roommate to bring me God. He brought God to me right where I was at on a wrestling mat. And for so many people, we just want to go where they're at. And music is such a big part of that. Well, fishing is... But you're not going. The attractional church or the seeker-driven church is not about going. It's about attracting them and making them come to you. Something I love to do, and to kind of explain a little bit more about bait and fishing, I contacted a good friend of mine, Dave Beebe. He's back here in the back with his entourage. And he's an expert at fishing. As this boat, he goes out onto Lake Michigan. Get this name, guys. His boat's called Carnage. 
<laughs> we, we went out, and I just asked him, Dave, just, just talk about fishing. Talk about bait and what this is all about. And you'll see how this connects to the Daybreak mission. Take a look at this video. It's 5 a.m. This is Dave Beebe and his boat. What do you call this boat, Dave? It's called the Carnage. The Carnage. We are here in Grand Haven. This is uh, one of our video experts, Mike Gone. And we're about to put in because we're going to take a look at uh, what it means to catch fish. So, Dave, we've spent all this time this morning driving your boat way out into Lake Michigan. Why have we come so far? Because this is where the fish are. Can't we just put the boat in the water up into the channel and just, they come to you, they just jump in the boat. Sometimes, if that's where the fish are, but this time of year, they're out really deep with the water temperature. So, uh, we, we got to go where the fish are. Okay, going to point something out here. This fishing video um, doesn't fit their practice at all. You have to go where the fish are. Well, I agree. Go where they are and cast the net. But a seeker-driven church doesn't go where the fish are. They instead engage in deception and use bait to attract the fish. Okay? So even this video doesn't fit the metaphor, and the one biblical passage we have so far doesn't support their methods at all. Remember, they are basically trying to justify playing secular songs in church, all because we're supposed to go where the fish are. But they're not going to where the fish are. They're using the world's favorite worldliness. They're using worldliness to attract the world to their church. Okay, Let me read a couple of passages here. James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Now notice, okay, they play Santana songs. So they're partnering with Santana in a way for ministry. But what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness what accord has christ with belial what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever what agreement has the temple of god with idols for we are the temple of the living god as god said i will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and i will be their god and they shall be my people therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them says the lord and touch no unclean thing then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14-18. First John chapter 2, 15-17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, he, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world and its is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Listen again to the, the things of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride of life, desires. These, these things are exactly what secular songs are all about. 
They're not praising our crucified and risen Lord. They're basically praising and pursuing the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's pretty much the, the, the sum total of the major messages of all of the secular songs out there, right? John chapter 15, verses 18 through 19. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John chapter 15, where Jesus says, if, uh, if, um, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Well, that's what's going on in these seeker-driven churches. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. They're basically giving the world what the world wants, and so the world loves these churches. Right? That's what's going on. Okay, so we've got a problem here. Okay, these passages that he's going to be using here, you'll find that they don't support the methodology, and even the metaphors they're using to so-called, to apparently justify their methodology, it breaks down as soon as you just apply a little bit of thought to the metaphor. We continue. Nice and easy. I was just messing. Nice and easy. Oh, he just popped off. No, he's on there. Nice and easy. If he's pulled. All right, we got one on. We got it. We're going to name this one Wes. Come on in here, sunshine. Lift him up, Jeffrey. Back up, buddy. Oh, what's in the little cooler? It's called a spin doctor. It's an attractor here. Attracts. This attracts. Attracts the fish to the food, which is this little fly right here. That's interesting. You know, at daybreak, we have uh, something that we call attract. Three parts to uh, our mission, attract, grow, and serve. Well, there you go. That's an attract the right there. Dave, I see a couple other boats out here. Now, would you call that your competition? I'm not so sure it's our competition, but uh, they're out here trying to do the same thing we are. As long as all the fish get caught. So there's plenty of fish to go around. There's plenty. There's more fish than we got time to, to find. Now this guy over here, do you think he uses maybe some slightly different methods than you do in your boat? Yeah, he probably does. He probably does. I think everybody has uh, different baits and whatnot on their boat they're confident with. So he finds the way that... Yeah, but... The different methods, they all use the same method. Deception. Bait and switch. Attract. But the fishing that Jesus was referring to was net fishing. No deception needed. You cast the net, which is the gospel. It works for him to bring in the fish to his boat. Yeah. More than enough to go around. There's plenty. <laughs> that's it. Here's a king salmon eating a bait that's kind of designed for king salmon. Not really designed for steelhead, it's designed for salmon. So you have to use uh, the right kind of bait to bring this particular fish in. Typically, yeah. Hey, 
Dave Beebe. Would you stand up back there and just raise your hand up? He's right back here in the back. Give that guy a hand, would you? Amazing time. That little girl is Rachel Gone, good friend of mine, his daughter, and his wife is out there, Debbie, and we just had a great day. Can you see the connection? Isn't it obvious? You heard Dave's words. You know, when I asked him, you know, what about those boats out there? Is that competition? Other churches? He said, no, no. There's more than enough fish to go around. We just know where we're supposed to fish. We're not against anybody at daybreak. In fact, we're for everybody. Wow. Let's go out after people because God loves them. I was really stunned a couple of years ago on Father's Day. Now, this would sound good if it wasn't for the fact that, well, we've got a long history of reviewing seeker-driven sermons and find that they don't preach the word. They don't rightly handle God's word. They've changed the gospel. They twist and mangle the word of God and water it down and teach a relevant feel-good message along with these methods. So... Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, but this is basically the ends justifying the means, and the means are, well, they seem to run afoul of clear passages from the Word of God. Thursday, when I watched this guy come in, all spiked up, tatted up, and he's just kind of swagging in, and he sits down back here with his latte, and he has this look on his face like, okay, I'm here, so what? And the girl next to him's kind of obviously brought him, and she's, oh, come on, you'll get in, and she's like, ah, leave me alone. I'm just watching him. And all of a sudden, the band kicks into Freebird, and they start lighting it up. And I mean, this guy just shot a look at his girlfriend or whoever she was, and he sits up, and he's clapping along. And by the end of the service, he was one of the ones being prayed for. Yeah, yeah. See, that justifies playing Freebird in church. Our mission may not be like everybody else. And, you know, praise God for it. Because uh, No, actually, you have the same mission that every church has. There's no such thing as a unique mission for an individual congregation. That doesn't exist in Scripture. Because when a guy like Brian Welsh gets on stage here and he's been changed because somebody came to his world, somebody said, I'm going to this guy. God loves him. And so many of you sitting in here, you heard his testimony. He loves Jesus, and he's now going out to impact his part of the world. Isn't that what it's about? That's the first part of this whole idea of music. We have... Well, then go. Go. That's the verb, isn't it? Go. Attractional church is not go, it's come. A brand. We have what we do that's specific to daybreak. Now, for some of you, you might be sitting back here thinking, okay, that's all good, the experiential stuff, Jeff. Give me some Bible, buddy. Yeah, please, I can hardly wait. Is it in Scripture? And I'm going to take you to three places. Okay, so three passages of Scripture prove that this method is actually of God. In the next few minutes. One situation from the Old Testament, two from the New. From the Old Testament, you're familiar with Moses? Let me give you the background. Prince of Egypt, elevated to the highest ranks. On the inside, he knew he was called of God, but he went around about it the wrong way. Killed a guy, hit him in the sand. Pharaoh chases him off. For 40 years, he's in the wilderness. And in that wilderness, God calls out to him. Here's the scenario. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Moses saw that though there was a bush there on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'm going to go over and see this strange sight 
why the bush doesn't burn up. Isn't this interesting that God uses something to attract Moses' attention? He's been on in the desert 40 years. Yeah, and that's, okay, by the way, this is what we call proof texting. Do you think that the reason why God the Holy Spirit had Exodus chapter 3 and 4 written with this, the account of the burning bush is so that we can learn the method that God wants us to employ uh, in, you know, in church to attract people's attention? Not at all. This is called proof texting. You're reading something in there. Yes, God used a burning bush to get Moses' attention, and he spoke to him from the burning bush. But that does not then mean, therefore, we can play secular songs in church because God used a means to attract somebody's attention, that we can therefore use whatever means we can to attract somebody's attention. Okay, If, the met- if, if you were to really make the metaphor work, you'd have to basically get a command from God Basically saying, and in order to attract the attention of non-believers, be sure to use their favorite worldly uh, vices, tunes, and, and and ideas. Okay, but you'll notice that God, the Holy Spirit, or who actually Jesus was probably the one speaking to him from the burning bush, that God did not use um, an Egyptian uh, top forty tune to get his attention. He did not use uh, Egyptian pagan trappings to get his attention, nor did he use a tune of the Midianites to get their attention. Okay? There was nothing culturally attached to either the Midianites or the Egyptians by God's speaking from a burning bush. The metaphor doesn't work. This text does not support playing secular songs in church. This is proof texting, taking verses out of context, ripping them from their context in order to make basically come up with some kind of justification for something that is not justifiable. He's had it. His life's been wasted. He's nothing that he knew he was supposed to be. And all of a sudden, on a hillside, there's a glowing bush. Here's what God says to him. When the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, God called to him from the bush and said, Moses, Moses. Moses said, Here I am. Don't come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're now standing is holy ground. And then God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So many times our first impression of God is like this, but watch what happens. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them. Did you hear that? I've come down to rescue them. He's not trying to get people to become holy, to be like he is. He says, I'm coming down to you. He's not trying to get people to be holy? Um, Boy, that's some weird theology. Considering the fact that Jesus commands, be ye holy as I am holy. Weird. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt and to worship me at this mountain. Look at the precedent. God first attracts Moses through something so unique, so creative, it's never been done or seen before. And Moses walks over. He's attracted. And then in that time with the Lord, he begins to grow. His heart's changing, and God says, you're now my deliverer again. And he goes out, and he changes the known world. Sometimes when I read this, I think about so many people that can be sitting right here, 
Maybe you've had something happen in your life. It was supposed to go a different way, but it took another turn like Moses. And maybe you felt like you're in a wilderness. I I want to appeal to you. God knows where you're at right now. He sees you, your heart, and he wants to help you make a change. He partners. He never commands, never demands. He partners. Hmm. He never commands. He never demands. Have you heard of the Ten Commandments? Yeah, we've got a theological problem here. By the way, let me show you an example from Scripture in a worship setting where the children of Israel had the cultural trappings that they were familiar with and you know it, while they were in slavery and see if these cultural trappings um and religious you know, ideas flew with God Exodus 32 when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him up make us gods who shall go before us As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Okay, this, you know, this calf, more than likely, is exactly the type of golden image or calf figure that we see in many of the uh, hieroglyphics, you know, from from Egypt, from ancient Egypt. This is what they were used to. This is something that they were familiar with, right? And, you know, basically they're they're worshiping the God who brought them out of Egypt, right? Okay. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. So this is a feast to Yahweh by means of something they're culturally familiar with. Common ground, right? So they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Okay? So they had a feast to Yahweh through the means of something they were familiar with. Common ground. Culturally, they understood this. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them, and they have made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods. Yeah, but remember, this is a feast to Yahweh. They were doing this in the name of the Lord, right? But the Lord's not accepting this, okay? And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. I may consume them in order that I make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Ultimately, Moses' prayer on behalf of the people prevails. But there were many of them who died as a result of this. But see, this is what they were familiar with. This is where they were at. 
Okay, they were worse. This was a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh, through the means of a golden calf. It's perfectly fine, right? It's in the name of Yahweh. But God didn't accept it. That was bringing the pagan world into Israel and worshiping God the way the pagans do. Many Israelites were cut down and lost their lives that day. Many of them did. This is the same thing, by the way. In fact, the name for the Holy Spirit is paraclete. It means one who's called alongside. He gently moves us. He didn't scream at Moses from a bush, Moses, come here. That's what he wants to do with all of us. Here's the second scenario from Scripture. This one from the New Testament. And it's found right out of the gates in Acts. A little background. Jesus rises from the dead on the first day of the week, a Sunday. And for 40 days, he walks with his disciples. He appears to over 500. He teaches. He walks with people. He makes an impact that's unbelievable. And finally, at the end of 40 days, as he's about to get ready to leave, he says to his followers, I'm about to go, but I'm going to leave with you the promise of my father. For John baptized with water. In a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And here's the scripture. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. By the way, this Pentecost means 50. It was 10 days after Jesus left. The disciples were in an upper room, the Bible says, 120 of them praying, asking God to send his spirit. They were all together in one place when suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, watch this, when they heard the sound, something attracted them. A crowd came together in bewilderment. Okay, now at this point, he's proof texting again. He's proof texting. This does not justify using a secular cover song in a gathering of Christians who've gathered around God's word as a church congregation to receive God's word and the Lord's Supper. This does not justify that. At all. He's proof texting. Yeah, people heard the sound, but was this normative? Did this then become the formula, the basis, you know, the, the standard way in which when the church met, they first did something to attract people's attention so that they could come and hear the word? No, not at all. This was, this did not become the normative thing that set the pattern for church services. This was the day of Pentecost, the day in which the Holy Spirit fell, the day in which the church began. This is the birth of the church, and it begins with a miracle, a reverse Tower of Babel miracle, where the different tongues of human humanity are then unscrambled so that they hear the wonders of God in their own language. This did not become the pattern then for how church was done for the last 2,000 years or even during the first century. Again, he's ripping this verse out of context and proof texting in order to basically try to make this biblically justify their unjustifiable behavior.
because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? How is it then that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia. And pay attention to what they were hearing. They weren't hearing secular songs. Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Declaring the what? Declaring the wonders of God in our own language. Huh. Do you think that Santana and Adele and other you know, popular secular singers are proclaiming the wonders of God in their songs? Not at all. So this verse doesn't support their practice. Amazed, perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? And then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. And he begins to preach who Jesus is. What an amazing truth that God does something to the crowds that are milling through Jerusalem just 50 days after the most horrendous historic event ever, the crucifixion. But so many don't know about the resurrection. And Peter, who himself had just come through a wilderness, <laughs> preaches the message through something that attracts people. The wind, the sound. God does something unique and valuable. 3,000 people are saved. That and they heard the wonders of God in their own language. It's, this is not the same thing. You cannot draw the parallel between the two. The one does not justify your bringing worldly, secular songs into the temple of God. That day, and the church begins to proliferate and grow. Third item from Scripture. Wes had an amazing series called The Original Outlaw, where he traced, he and Claudia took time to trace the steps of Paul, the apostle, the writer of 13 New Testament books. And on that journey, he showed us one place in Athens, the Areopagus, big open-air theater, now, Paul, on his journey, just to take you back to that for a minute, was wanting to take Jesus into the world and to every part of Asia that he could. But while he was in Greece, he noticed in Athens that they had all kinds of gods all over the place. And he struggled to think of a way to get across the message of Christ. And here okay, he, his, he's not actually reading this story. This is the standard proof text that people go to to justify playing secular songs in church. But when we go back and look at this text, the whole thing falls apart. Watch. Here's where we pick up. Then they took Paul to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, we want to know this new teaching that you're presenting. Now, he skipped an important piece of this passage. Okay, Because here's how the argument goes. While Paul was at the Areopagus on Mars Hill, he quoted a Stoic philosopher. Okay. He quoted one of their poets, and see, that's how he attracted their attention. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth, okay? Let me read to you what really took place. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. That part he told, but watch this. So... He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and he reasoned in the marketplace 
every day with those who happened to be there. He was provoked. So what did he do? He went to the synagogue and then he went to the marketplace and he was reasoning with everybody there. Telling them the good news, telling them the gospel. How did he get their attention? Answer, he went to the synagogue and he went to the marketplace and he proclaimed the gospel. That's what he did. And he reasoned with them. How would Paul reason with them? Telling people in the synagogues that Jesus is the promised Messiah. What did he do with the people in the marketplace? Telling them to turn from their idols and to believe in Jesus, who is God in human flesh. Proved it by raising himself from the dead. So the way that Paul got their attention was by reasoning with them in the synagogue and the marketplace. That's what the text says. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? They, he's already got their attention, right? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. He's already got their attention, doesn't he? How did he get their attention? By going into the marketplace and reasoning with them, right? Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. This is what the text says. How did Paul get their attention? He was reasoning in the synagogue and marketplace and preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He already had their attention. Okay, So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. So they they already know he's presenting a new teaching. They've already heard some of this and they want more information. He already has their attention, okay? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. He's already got their attention. So Paul is going to tell them more of what these things mean. So now... Now, the all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So this is something brand new, right? He already had their attention. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. So what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For, quote, in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your own poets have said we are indeed his offspring. So he quotes their own poets to make a theological point and then moves on. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. This is an apologetic argument, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given full assurance 
to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, they some mocked. Others said, well, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. Okay. So let's lay this out. Here's how these seeker-driven guys are. See, Paul quotes a, a pagan poet. I want to point something out here. Note, Paul already had their attention. In fact, the reason he was called to the Areopagus was for clarification regarding the things that they heard him teaching in the marketplace and in the synagogue. Right? So they wanted to know more. He already had their attention. And it's important to note this. The meeting of the Areopagus, this is not a church meeting at all. And it's also important to note that the Apostle Paul, when he went to Mars Hill to give clarification regarding the gospel he was preaching, because he already had their attention, he did not actually perform this play. Or he did not fully quote the poet. He did not get up and recite it and and enthrall them with the rhetoric and basically say, listen, you know, we, I, I'm trying to attract you to my church, so we're, I'm going to read this whole thing. I'm going to perform this poem for you. Nothing of the sort. He simply quotes it in order to appeal to something they understand so that he can develop further develop his point. Okay? That's all he did here. This is not even remotely close to the same thing as performing a secular song in church. Number one, this isn't church. Number two, he already had their attention. Number three, he just it was a minor quote from a pagan poet to make a bigger theological point as he was explaining further the teaching they had already heard him saying in the marketplace. This does not even remotely come close to justifying playing a secular song in church. Not even close. And you have to mangle the story and omit large portions of this text in order to create the illusion that this somehow justifies playing pagan songs in church. Let me back this up so that you can hear how he skips over details. Paul on his journey, just to take you back to that for a minute, was wanting to take Jesus into the world and to every part of Asia that he could. But while he was in Greece, he noticed in Athens that they had all kinds of gods all over the place. And he struggled to think of a way to get across the message of Christ. And he no, he didn't, because the next verse says that he went into the marketplace and in the synagogues. Here's where we pick up. Then they took Paul to a meeting of the Areopagus. Where he skipped the part where Paul was preaching and reasoning every day in the marketplace and in the synagogues. He skipped that. Where they said to him, we want to know this new teaching that you're presenting. You're bringing some new ideas to our ears. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Let me pause right there to say this. Paul studied the culture. He knew that Zeus was the God of these things he has just labeled, gives life and breath, places people where he wants. They believe that about Zeus. 
Paul is beginning to attract their attention through what they know. No, he already had their attention. He's trying to convey the gospel in terms that they can understand. There's a big difference. He he already attracted their attention by reasoning with them in the marketplace. But you skipped that important data. And again, this is not happening in church at all. He goes on, from one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Let me stop right there. One of the most famous cultural heroes of the day was Eratus, who penned a very long poem called Phenomena. It's about nature. It's about the gods of the day. And this phrase was put into song, music, and Paul goes out and he grabs this phrase to attract their attention and say, No, he didn't. He didn't do that to attract their attention. He already had their attention from his preaching in the marketplace. And again, this wasn't church. This was a meeting of the Areopagus. And two, he didn't perform the poem. He didn't sing it to them. He simply took a small snippet of it in order to make a bigger theological point. See, even your own poets, they know that there's a truth here. He's going to where they're at, right where they're sitting. But then he brings them out. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. What an amazing truth. Do you see that? Moses, attracted, has time with God. No, Moses didn't attract. He didn't. And just because God appeared in a burning bush does not mean that we need to play secular songs in order to attract pagans to our churches. Life change, and he goes out. Peter, those in the upper room, God does something phenomenal, breathes the Holy Spirit's power into the world, attracts people by the sound. Are people attracted by us, by the Holy Spirit in us? Two weeks ago, I was at our mission. Are people attracted by the Holy Spirit in us? What are you talking about? Michigan District Conference for the Wesleyan Churches. One of the most powerful speakers I've ever heard is Dr. Joanne Lyon. She is now the general superintendent of the uh, Wesleyan Churches. She's the one who began World Hope International. God has touched lives all over this planet. She stood up and gave a directive to the church. And in that directive, she talked about prayer. And then she said something that caught my attention, just like the situation in Acts. She said, there was a time in my life where I struggled and I didn't know where I was to go with God. I kept seeking God. And all at once, the Holy Spirit got a hold of my life. I could feel his move in me. And from that day, I've been changed. And I want to walk with him and I want to see people changed. Is that something that you've asked for, for the Holy Spirit to come into your life and do something that burns up the stuff you can't deal with? God's that real. I heard this woman say, What does this have to do with playing secular songs in church? What on earth? 
folks, this is just this is all over the map, and this is not a lucid, exegetical sermon. This is eisegesis and proof texting out-of-context verses in order to basically justify a practice, number one, that is not justified biblically, and number two, the church has never engaged in until these guys came along, and all of it being blamed on God the Holy Spirit. This is really, really bad. Say what that's like, and it, it, it moved my heart. I thought, she's right. There's so much more of God, and how can we just tiptoe or just put our feet just into the water when there's a whole plunge he wants us to take. There's an attract, but he wants us to grow, and he wants to use our lives to make an impact in the world. Use our lives to make an impact in the world. How about we preach the gospel? Because that's the life that makes the impact, the proclamation of Christ and him crucified for our sins. Jesus' life is the power that God uses to raise people from the dead. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, not by hearing by the word of Chris Roseboro or Jeff Henderson or Sally May or whoever. Somebody else is playing a song from earlier. That's awesome. Keep going. What about church history, Jeff? Okay, we got some scriptural basis, but how has the church moved in this over the years? Well, let me tell you this, because I did some research and I just found it fascinating. Martin Luther, the great reformer, 1500s. Oh, no. You, you know, a Wesleyan trying to use Martin Luther to justify the seeker-driven model. This is not going to be good because I'm a Lutheran. How much do you want to bet um, we're going to have a collision here? The church history is absolutely changed by what he did, what God used him for. During his day... The theme of music in the church was in Latin or whatever else they did. It was Gregorian chants. You know what Martin Luther said? I cannot live with this. And he began, he went out into the community. He took the bar form. That's a form of music that's common to people everywhere. Folk songs. Even that bar form was used for every common form of music, and he said, I'm writing my hymns from this, what's common to people. We're not going to try to take God and get them there. We're going to go right to where they're at. Uh, man, this is historically inaccurate. From the Motley Magpie website, you can find this at hopelutheranfremont.org forward slash motley. Yeah, that's the, the Motley Magpie. The Reverend Peter Berg writes, and he's a Lutheran pastor, <clears throat> Myth. Luther used bar songs in his hymnody. Ergo, it's permissible, even advantageous, to use popular forms of music in the church today. Truth. Luther did not use bar songs, but rather his own creations and the musical heritage of the church Catholic. The term bar refers to the type of staff notation used in medieval musical composing. Luther did wed one sacred text to a popular tune, but later regretted this dalliance with love ballads. The relatively new academic discipline called sentix had demonstrated that music can independently generate two different reactions and emotion, termed Dionysian and Apollonian, 
The first is emotive and turns one inward. It is self-gratifying and clearly anthropocentric. The second, while not denying the emotional impact of music, maintains control and gives room for the intellectual processing of the truth of the text. In the first type, the music dominates the text. In the second, the music is in service to the text. Christian contemporary music, a bad clone of popular music, is clearly Dionysian. Luther called Dionysian music carnal, and he wrote his music to wean people away from the love ballads of his day. Yeah, um, when you hear people use this argument that Jeff Henderson is employing here, um, they don't know what they're talking about. We continue. That was so impacting that the very namesakes of the Wesleyan church, John and Charles Wesley, who penned hundreds of hymns, said, Hey, John, what do you think we should do with our music? We're writing hymns. <laughs> Gee, Charles, I don't know. We like what Marty did in the 1500s. A bar form, it really worked for him. Oh, I see, chap. Let's do it. And they penned hundreds of hymns that the church now holds as sacred from the common form of music. They went out in the community and took the brand new, 300 years later, it wasn't the same, they took the brand new form of music that's common to everybody and they wrote their hymns from it. Yeah, this is, this is historically inaccurate. This is just, you know, this is a historical rewrite that is not true to the facts. 100 years after them, the prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, illuminated God throughout Europe, preached over 10 million people around 1980. Amazing preacher. He said of that kind of music, when they brought it to him, what do you think about what these guys do with music? He said, why should the devil have all the good music? Can you say amen to that? Come on. Why should the... Okay, here's the other thing. I want to point something out here. This parallel falls apart because this is an apologetic for playing secular cover songs in church, not praise songs or hymns that worship and basically have sacred meaning to them and basically have Christian doctrine in them. This is supposedly an apologetic for attracting people using Santana and Adele and others. This is just flat-out deceptive, what uh, Jeff Henderson is doing here. It's not historically accurate, and it's not even accurate using the metaphors that he's trying to use to support this. Biblically, he's twisted the text, he's eisegeted, and now he's t mis basically retold history in a way that's not true. This is unbelievable. The devil have all the good music. I'm telling you what, there is something that is sacred when you give it to God. You say, Lord, I want you to use this. I want my life to shine. Just take this thing that we're doing. And God says, you know what? Thank you. I just need a vessel. I just need a church. I just need somebody. And then he goes and changes lives. You know, that's happened over and over and over here at Daybreak. And someone goes and changes lives. Hmm. Alcoholics Anonymous changes lives. Of you, so many of you are sitting here, and you say, "Yeah, that's me." You know, I came in here just kind of a an onlooker, and God's got a hold of me. I want to bring out a good friend of mine. His name's Eric Johnson, and I want him to take just a minute and explain to you what this attracts, what this growth, what this serving means to him. Would you give him a hand. This is Eric Johnson. So he's going to explain what it means to him. 
And when I get really old, he's going to be my bodyguard. Well, Eric, God has uh, been doing some things in your life, but let me take you back here. I remember you showing up at daybreak, kind of deer in the headlights. This was all new to you. Did the music, the common things that we did here, did that make an impact on you somehow? Uh, absolutely. Um, I think when you come into a new situation, uh, especially church, uh, for me anyway, um, have a tendency to feel judged and you put your, your guard up. Um, and hearing familiar music made me feel more comfortable. It was allowed me to let my guard down a little bit, which allowed some message to get through to me. And that was when? When, when did you first start coming to Daybreak? Last fall, um, October time frame. And did that music, what's that mean to you now as you've gone on? Um, I'm a pretty nostalgic person. Um, music is pretty powerful for me. It, it can bring me back to a, a moment in time, a vivid moment in time. And now some of those same songs, um, which may have been to a, a more depressing time or a time where I was not as far along in my walk with God as I am now. Um, it reminds me of my faith and, and where I want to go. Wow. Gotcha. Well, you know, a lot of guys, uh, they have their toes just dangling in the water. Have, have you gone beyond that, taken a deeper plunge? Yes. Um, working, uh, like I said, I started coming in the fall. Um, my wife and I, Abby, she's in the audience. We had a pretty thorough discussion. Um, driving down, and we were asking God for things, but we weren't really putting it all out there. We wanted to go all in. So as of January 1st, um, we made the commitment to start tithing our full 10%. Um, we weren't necessarily in a position to do so, but, you know, if we were asking... Hmm. I'm not hearing about repentance and the forgiveness of sins, nor am I hearing about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. I'm hearing a guy who's apparently progressing in, well the law, but I'm not hearing about Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. This sounds like legalistic self-righteousness, kind of a watered-down version of it. My question is, what's the gospel that he believes in? And God, and we had faith in God, we had to have that whole faith. Um, about that time, too, we did, I participated in a 21-day fast, which actually culminated. Um, the last day of my fast was the day that we were baptized. I remember that right down here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, hearing a lot about him, nothing about Jesus. My question is, what is the doctrine he's being taught? I'm not hearing anything that's Christian here. And I know that sounds really cynical, but that's really the truth. What can we point to that says this guy has been brought to repentance of his sins and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of his sins and bearing food and fruit in keeping with repentance? I'm hearing a guy who's making progress in life change and now has enough faith to tithe. That's not the gospel, and that's not even Christian sanctification. Um, in that 21-day fast, just so you don't get too blown away by that, is a partial fast, we'd call it. It's just deciding, I'm going to stay away from something and just seek God. And I know, Eric, that was very, very important to you, very special, because we talked about it during that time which came out of the Iron Man, which you've been instrumental in helping with. So how do you see yourself now? You've been growing. How do you see yourself as a husband, father? Where have things gone? I've come a long way. Um, I'm not where I want to go, but prior to my uh, commitment to going all in, I, was, I would call myself a bystander Christian. Um, going prior to my commitment to going all in, 
What is that? To the motions, uh, saying I was a Christian Sunday, but Monday through Saturday I was, you know, maybe doing different things. Um, I certainly wasn't the leader in my home. I wasn't the husband or the father that I needed to be. Um, I lost that time uh, by waiting, but now that I'm all in, I'm, I see myself as that leader, as that husband, as that father that I, that my family desperately needs. Do you have some vision for what's up ahead then? It doesn't just stop now. What, what's up ahead for you? I would like to be, you know, God willing, um, to be a mentor or a coach to the young men um, coming up through our community to help keep them on the right track or not allow them to go down some of the roads that I did. We have a lot of people out here, and I'm sure there are people in the same situation you were in uh, back some months. What would you say to them when it comes to thinking about the scary part of going all in, as you put it, to jump in and take that next step? Um, like I said, I would, I would encourage them to go all in. Um, I can't get those days back that, that I wasn't all in, so... Um, when I made that commitment, I wanted to go all the way. I wanted to do everything that the Bible said. I wanted to commit myself to the Lord and being the, the man, the husband, and the, the father that um, I'm supposed to be. So you got a lot ahead of you. How about a hand? That's, that's awesome. Love you, man. So because they were able to get somebody to commit to go all in, that justifies playing secular songs in church. Again, I come back to this. I'm not hearing the gospel here at all. I'm hearing a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps form of pietism, not true contrition and repentance and the forgiveness of sins and salvation by grace alone through faith alone by Christ's work alone. I'm hearing a lot about these people, but very little, if anything, about Jesus. You're going, yeah, that sounds so harsh. Yeah, I know. But that's the reality of the situation. Read the book of Galatians. To attract is, is a goal. And Eric, uh, I've had the pleasure of walking with him and watching everything change around him. That's what God does. And that's what Daybreak is all about because we believe that God cares about the individual. We believe God cares so much about you that we want to go to where you are. But you didn't. You attracted him to where you are. To find a way to let you know that God loves you. He impacts you right, right where you're at. And it doesn't matter how much time. As Eric said so beautifully, he lost some time. You know what's cool about God? When you decide to go all in, he doesn't like set you on a shelf for a while and say, no, I just want you to watch and learn. He says, let's get busy. Let's go after it right now. Because we like to be into what we're doing and growing, and God does it by activity. As we finish up, I want to share this one last scenario with you. I had the pleasure to travel to Florida last week. I have a younger brother named Todd. Todd, 15 years ago, was strung out on a $1,000 a week crack addiction. I had prayed for him for 15 years. In Florida, where he had to escape from the law here in the state of Michigan, he found Jesus Christ. <laughs> Actually, Jesus Christ showed up on a street corner when Todd was just at his wit's end, ready to end it all. And he started growing in his faith. And now, 15 years later, he's a leader in his church in Orlando. 
He's helping to lead a men's ministry, and he said, Jeff, why don't you come down and be a part of our men's encounter? And I thought, that's great. I want to see what they do because we have our Ironman event coming up in September, end of September. So I flew down, spent time with my brother Todd. I have a brother named Mitch that lives three hours away in Englewood, Florida. Mitch is 42. He's been an alcoholic since probably his teen years. Horrible temper, just unhappy in life. Three months ago, he destroyed his back. He's a construction worker moving this big pipe that he on a machine. He couldn't get out of the way, so he's going to be the tough guy, and he threw his back out. He's out of work for three months. And I called him. I said, I know Todd has talked to you. Cue sappy music. By the way, this is a standard thing in a lot of these churches. The sappy music is to create the emotional appearance that God the Holy Spirit is now making his way through the uh, the auditorium. How can you tell that the Holy Spirit's there? Well, you can tell by the type of music being played. To you year after year to come to the men's encounter, I'd love to see you. Why don't you come over? Uh, he didn't like anything to do with church. And he's been in from time to time. But he came. He came to the men's encounter. And when we were there, I saw one of the most beautiful things I have ever seen. It was stunning to me. My brother Todd taught the centermost piece of the encounter. All the guys were given a nail. And he taught about the cross, how Jesus Christ loved us so much that he took nails for us. And, you know, we watched a portion of the Passion of the Christ. My brother Mitch is six foot two. <laughs> and I watched him. His knees buckled. He grabbed that nail. <laughs> I walked over to him and we walked, we walked to the cross. And I watched, guys, the most beautiful scene I've seen in a long time, because this is my brother. As he bent down and he sobbed, his shoulders were heaving, and he, he put that at the cross and said, Jesus, I give you everything. I so want to be all in. I don't know what this means, but I'm asking you to forgive me. And he just spent so much time at that cross. Music was playing, and I remember praying for him and just hugging this big brother of mine that for 42 years has wrestled with everything. And he gave his heart and life to Jesus, totally, completely, dove in. The next day, as we prayed for him, he stood up and said, God just healed my back. <laughs> the pain is all gone. Two days later, he went back to work for the first time in months. You know what God was saying to Mitch? Mitch, I love you. I have so much for you. You don't even understand how powerful I am. But I love you. If there was a nail in your hand this morning, what would you say about it? What would it be for you? What's in your life that's just keeping your toes on the edge and you're not, you're not taking that dive yet? And God's saying, you know what? I've got more for you. Yeah, this is not the preaching of the cross. Uh, Jesus, by the way... He had his hands and feet pierced by these nails for your sins. He's the one who took the hit for you. My brother Mitch texted me this morning. He said, Jeff, I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit now. I'm praying for you as you share today. He's picking up his Bible. He sent me the verse the other day, Jeremiah 15. He said, Jeff, this just spoke to me. I'm thinking, my bro after 42 years is reading Jeremiah and he's getting stuff? Woo, we're talking God is in the house. And he's in this house and he can do that for any one of us that says, I want more. 
is saying I want more the same thing as being brought to repentance of your sins and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. I don't think the two are synonyms. God, I want more. I'm not satisfied with dangling my toes in the water anymore. I'm not satisfied with where I've been. You might be really close to God this morning, but you want more. You might be far away and you say, you know what? I am like that guy in the desert. I'm like your brother. I have wrestled for so long. And God's just saying, I love you. Why don't you just dive in? No, the message we're called to proclaim is repent and be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. This is crossless at this point, And I mean that. There was just a fleeting mention of the cross in his brother's story, but not the cross of Jesus. And let me shower my love on you. That's what it's all about. So there you go. Um, the on-the-farm cowbell sermon that supposedly gives a biblical case for playing secular songs, cover songs, in church. Every passage ripped out of context. Every one of them, when you apply just simple discernment and paying attention to the language, doesn't prove his case at all. And the punchline in all of this was just God loves you. Just go all in. That's not the proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. That's something completely different. These people are not being taught to despair of their own righteousness and works and to stand empty-handed before Christ and receive everything as a gift. They're doing all these things and going all in and doing these works, you know, it's, it's really in some kind of futile attempt to prove their worthiness. That's not the gospel. That's the Galatian heresy. That's the Judaizing heresy. Does it, well, that's the logical conclusion, by the way, of even the Pelagian heresy. It ultimately leads to you having to save yourself by your good works and your obedience, going all in. God loves you. Don't worry about God just says, don't worry about it. I just love you. Dive in and start obeying me. It's not the gospel. It's not even Christian. And it makes perfect sense that their methods hook up with that theology. The two go hand in hand. At least that's what I've seen over and again. Well, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.